So your scripture reading this morning is found in your bulletin. We're going to be reading from the book of Hosea and also a brief text uh, from the book of Hebrews. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're, we're very glad you're here with us. I need to, to warn you, this is not the traditional Christmas sermon um, about donkeys or mangers or, or wise men. It's going to feel a little bit more like a Breaking Bad Christmas um, and so maybe they'll contract me to write that episode. But, but um, just keep that in mind as we read the text uh, this morning. We're reading Hosea 12 and 13, and then Hebrews chapter 9. This is God's word. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the hill, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress, Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich, I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt and by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled And their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. 
The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. They're in the book of Hebrews. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray to God. <clears throat> Father, we give you thanks for your word this morning, and this is a, this is a bleak text in many ways. Uh, And so I pray that you might give us help and see how it applies to our lives and how it might instruct us uh, to wait on you during the season of waiting. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I told you it wasn't a traditional Advent text. Um, I gave you you fair warning. You you probably aren't going to be sending Christmas cards with many texts from Hosea 12 or 13 printed on them. So... What does a text so graphic and disturbing in many ways have to offer us during what is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year? Uh, Well, Advent is actually a season of waiting. And and last Sunday, when I was originally going to preach this, is actually known as the Sunday of preparation or the Sunday of waiting. Waiting for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Uh, Many of us now are impatiently waiting for Christmas and for all the festivities involved in that. And so this is the season of waiting. And and here in the midst of our text, in verse 6, we read this of uh, chapter 12. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Verse 6 is in the middle of the carnage and calls people to wait for God. So we're going to focus on that. You might ask, well, if you're going to focus on that, why did you read all that other stuff that's so bleak and so negative? Well, I read it because I want us to to think about what it felt like. And to think about what it it feels like to be an Israelite. Imagine the Israelites of Hosea's day waiting. Uh, Imagine you're a citizen of the northern kingdom of Israel. And everything that Hosea said was going to happen has happened. Assyria has has come in and done all of this stuff. And now you're sitting in the rubble, waiting to be deported to Assyria, waiting for God to act, waiting for your country to be restored. Or maybe you're actually already in exile in Assyria, or later, uh, later exile to Babylon, and you've actually repented, and you've turned back to God... But there you sit, waiting to go home. Imagine you're a Christian living in war-torn Syria today. No Christmas trees, no decorations, just gunfire and bombs falling out of the sky. 
waiting. Maybe you're in North Korea, scared to mention the word Advent, scared to mention the word Jesus, waiting. Maybe you're in the Middle East, afraid that this Christmas Eve service is going to be your last Christmas Eve service because you never know when somebody's going to roll up with a bomb. Waiting. Maybe you're in the early rain church in China, in prison. Waiting. Maybe you lost a loved one this year. And the holidays are not what they used to be. And even as you look forward to seeing them again in the new heavens and the new earth, you're wondering when Christmas is ever going to be happy again. And so you're waiting. Waiting on a job. Waiting on a prodigal child to come home again. Waiting for someone to marry. Waiting for the chronic pain to end. Waiting for Jesus to show up somehow in your life. Waiting for Jesus to return. The the Christian life, in many ways, is all about waiting. And that's a very hard thing in a culture that hates to wait. Uh, If you don't believe me, go to Walmart in the next week. Um, I was there yesterday afternoon at 6 o'clock. Uh, they had actually had about 25 registers open and they needed five more open and still the lines were to the back of the store and the faces of everybody, including mine, were so angry that we had to wait. Uh, I was eating lunch with uh, Ryan Brady last week and talking about Chick-fil-A. He's working in, for Chick-fil-A now and I was talking about how I said, yeah, y'all do everything great, but if you order a milkshake sometimes, you have to wait so long for that thing. That's like the only thing y'all don't do right. And he kind of explained to me that process and why that was. And I said, well, why don't you work on that? Why don't you fix that? Okay? Because I don't don't like waiting for that milkshake. We we hate to wait. But if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully in this world, we we have to learn to wait. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Why we wait and how we wait, and what we're waiting for. First of all, why do we wait? Um, If if you've ever taken young children on a road trip over the holidays, you know that they don't understand why we wait. I mean, the the four most repeated words are, are we there yet? Kids, if you want to see your dad turn into the Incredible Hulk, say that about every ten minutes on your next road trip, not my kids. Um, but just repeat, like, like they don't understand, why are, we, why are we waiting? Why can't we be at Grandma's house already? Why do we wait? I want to look at that from, from, from two angles, kind of a, a closer in and then kind of an expanded version. In the near term, why is it that some of our prayer requests that seem like we're praying for such good things, why does it seem like it takes so long to answer sometimes? Like maybe you're trying to adopt a child and like, man, this is a, this is a great thing my family is trying to do. And yet all these roadblocks keep getting thrown in the way. Why does it take so long for God to answer? Uh, Doug Kelly in his book, If God Already Knows Why Pray, suggests three reasons for this wait. He says, for one, there are satanic hindrances when we pray. I don't know if you think about that very often. But in Daniel chapter 10, uh, an angel come in answer to Daniel's prayer and says that an evil angel has actually hindered him from coming. And so Daniel has to wait and to pray. There, there are satanic hindrances to our prayers. Uh, secondly, God is like a farmer who knows how to wait until it's time to harvest the crop. There are things that have to change in us and in the world around us. And those thing, 
things take time and God is waiting until the exact right time for the harvest. Thirdly, Dr. Kelly writes, we have a God who loves for us to become so desperate that we at last realize we have come to an end of ourselves and the end of human resources. We have to discover that we can't handle everything by ourselves, that all our cleverness, all our talents, all our family and business connections, and all our education are totally insufficient. Sometimes only that sort of situation can make us become desperate and determined enough to throw ourselves on His mercy and keep crying out. And it seems that our God is touched by that kind of desperation. And so there may be something you're waiting on right now. Something you're, you're praying for. And it, and it just hasn't been answered. And so we have to remember there are satanic hindrances to our prayers. And we're fighting a spiritual battle. That God may be taking time to get everything in order and lined up to answer this prayer that you've been making. Or maybe that God is delaying the answer because what because of what he's doing in your life. That he's bringing you to the point where you finally actually give up on yourself and on your ability to fix the situation. I'd, I'd add here that there are some things in this world that just don't get made right this side of heaven. There are prayers that aren't answered. There are diseases that aren't healed. There's conflict that doesn't end. And so we need to look not just sort of in the near term, but we need to to zoom out and think about this larger weight that we're all involved in. Um, there's, a, there's a day coming when the storm clouds are going to lift. But for now, we, we deal with the tornadoes. We deal with the difficulties of life. Why is that? Why is it like that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that we, like the people of Hosea's day, are, are living in exile. The people of Israel are headed into exile... But that is only a picture of the exile that we all experience in this life. You know the story. You know how this works. Uh, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And the result of that is they're exiled from God's presence. They're exiled from the Garden of Eden. They're blocked from eating of the tree of life. They're thrust into a world of sin and death and decay and disease. And in the midst of that, they're, they're given this promise that someone's going to come one day to, to crush the head of the serpent, to crush the head of Satan. And they start waiting. And we start waiting with them. And then one day Jesus comes. John the Baptist thinks that he has come to bring ju- judgment and to establish his kingdom now. But instead, judgment is delayed and Jesus goes to a cross. But then he rises again and sends his disciples to take the good news to the world about how we can be brought into the very family of God. He sends them with this promise that one day, hey, I'm coming back and I'm going to make all things new. We're celebrating the first advent, but we're anticipating the second advent when Jesus comes back. Romans 8 puts it this way, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what that tells us is that glory is coming. We have to wait. And we want glory now. And so we have to remember why it is that we wait so that we can fight against the temptation to demand serenity now. So that we can fight against the temptation to demand that we have our treasures now. So that we can fight against despair when life goes the way life in a fallen world often goes. Um, think about a terrible football program and they've just hired the coach who's going to change everything and lead them to the promised land and how impatient the fan base gets during the process. Why aren't we there now? Why aren't we experiencing glory now? Why aren't we winning championships now? I think we, we get like that and we have to, in a sense, lower our expectations of this life. Yes, there will be glorious moments, but there will never be any kind of glory that lasts and that doesn't disappoint us until we meet Jesus. Peggy Noonan uh, was a political speech writer several years ago. She wrote, <coughs> excuse me, wrote this. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this to be the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one. We are the first generations of man that actually expected to find happiness on earth, and our search for it has caused such unhappiness. The reason, if you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in the flat material world around you, if you believe this is your only chance of happiness, if that is what you believe, then you are not disappointed when the world does not give you a good measure of its riches. You're despairing. And so we have to remember... Why we wait? We wait because the world is broken. We wait because all things are not yet made right. We wait because we're not going to find what we're looking for in this life. Well, how do we wait? That's why we wait. What's our posture as we wait? Several years ago, the Houston airport was getting all these complaints about how long people were having to wait in baggage claim to pick up their luggage. And so they hired more workers, and they cut the wait time down to eight minutes, which was kind of the industry standard. And so they're like, well, this is good enough. But everybody kept complaining about it. And so they studied it some more, and they found out that basically people, it was taking them one minute to walk to the baggage claim, and then they were standing there waiting on their baggage for seven minutes. And so this is what they did. They moved the baggage claim further away and made people walk six times as far to get to their luggage. And so they walked further, and then they stood for, for a shorter period of time, and the number of complaints dropped to zero. Like, like everybody, it's the same amount of time, but everybody quit complaining. We're much better at waiting when we're, when we're occupied, when we have something that we're doing. And I think that helps us, kind of in a silly way, to think about what Christian waiting looks like 
waiting on all things are made new is not me just like sitting on the couch watching TV going, well, just just broken and Jesus is going to come back one day and say, I'm just going to watch the game until he gets back and fixes all this. No, we're, we're not called to passively wait. We're called to actively wait. So what does that look like? How do we wait? How are we moving as we wait? Well, one thing we have to remember is that we wait with a Godward focus. Hosea hears in the text, in this text, and he does it frequently, he accuses the people of forgetting about God. So as we wait, as we cope with the difficulties of life in a fallen world, we have to remember God. We remember that we have a God who guides people through this wilderness. And so we cry out, as the book of James tells us to, for wisdom in navigating all this stuff. We trust that God is one day going to judge the world justly. And so we realize that, that all of the, world, the, the wrongs in this life are not going to be made right this side of eternity. But we trust that he is a just God and he is going to bring justice. And, and so we look to that. We look to that. We wait on him. Here, here is what um, Wang Yi, I forget his name now, the, the Chinese pastor. I don't want to mess it up again. Uh, this is what he says. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by the angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. He's got this Godward focus that he's able to say, you know what, this may not be made right this side of heaven and earth, but I serve a judge who's going to make this right. And so I can wait. We, We trust that we have a God who provides, so we continually look to him for our daily bread. We trust that we have a God who actively redeems, so we look to him for salvation. We look to him for sanctification. You know, what do you always tell kids when they're learning how to play baseball, when they're, when, they're, when they're going up to bat? Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. As we wait, we have to, to keep our eye on God. We have to maintain this Godward focus. Secondly, um, in verse 4 of chapter 12, Hosea makes this reference to Jacob wrestling all night with God. You can find that story in Genesis 32. And if you remember that, Jacob basically wrestles and cries out, I ain't letting go until you bless me. Now, this is Jacob who earlier in his life thought the only way that he was going to get blessed was if he stole his brother's birthright, finally realizing that if I'm going to be blessed, that blessing has got to come from God. So I'm not going to let go of him. Uh, Jesus in the New Testament will call us to persistently wrestle with God in prayer. Uh, the Psalms are, are wrestling with God. The Psalm I read in the pastoral prayer, it, it, Psalms like that, you hear the people not saying, well, okay, this is how it is. They cry out, how long, God? How long before you make this right? How long before you answer our prayer? And so as we, we wait, we're not just passive, but we are actively wrestling with our God in prayer. Uh, I heard a story recently of a... Um, a woman whose son was in the Israeli army. 
And for a while, they had this practice of basically he was gone for two weeks, and then he'd get to come home on leave for a couple days. And he'd be gone for two weeks, and he'd get to come home for a couple days. Well, this just stopped. He was just gone. And, and she was not happy about this. So she starts making phone calls. So she calls his immediate superior, whoever she could get in touch with. And she basically worked her way up the chain of command. And she would call somebody and she would just keep them on the phone, yammering away with them until finally they said something that was offensive to her. And she would say, I can't believe you just said that. I want to speak to your superior. And so she would get bumped up to the next person. And she did this all the way up the, the chain of command until she's finally talking to this guy who's the head of the Israeli military. He's a decorated war hero. He'd be like, like if I said, if, I, if we were Israelis, I'd say his name. We all go, oh, like, that's, that's incredible. So she finally gets this guy, and she's talking to him on the phone, and she basically threatens him. She's like, this is not going to go well for you if you don't let my son come home on leave. And, and he says, wait, I don't know if you know who I am, but I don't intimidate very easily. And she said, well, you've not, never had a 70-year-old, five-foot-tall Holocaust survivor, Holocaust survivor yelling at you at every public appearance you make for the rest of your life. And her son got to go home and leave. He's like, okay, you win. I don't want to do it. Now, my point is not, my point is not threaten God. Okay, that'd be, that's a bad thing. That's not what it takes in this illustration. The, the, the point is that she was persistent. And she kept making her case. And she kept making her case. And the scripture calls us to do that. Jesus tells us to do that, to wrestle with God in prayer. And so waiting is not passive. Waiting is is active. Uh, Thirdly, what does it look like as we wait? In verse 6 of chapter 12, um, So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love, and justice hold fast to love and justice we don't just say well god's going to fix all this one day and then ignore the injustices of the world around us we recognize that some things aren't going to be made right until jesus returns but because jesus has a heart for the poor and the downtrodden and the refugee and the oppressed we seek to develop a heart for those people and to serve those people as well um, if you've spent much time with, with Auburn graduates and Auburn graduate, one of the things you'll probably hear us rattle on about at some point is, is the Auburn Creed and how we, it's like the Apostles' Creed of Auburn University uh, and, and how we love our creed. And at, at the very end, toward the end of that creed, there's a line that says this. I'll spare you the whole thing. It says, it, it quotes from Micah, from the prophet Micah, and it says, I can best serve my country by doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with my God. I used to have that creed on the wall in my office and now I've taken it down and put up a deer I shot. So I don't know what that means, but, but, I, but I, still, I still really like uh, the creed and I like that line because what's it telling us? is like, as we wait, we're seeking to do justice. We're, we're walking humbly with God. We're seeking to love our neighbor. We're seeking to love the poor and the oppressed. We're trying to get our hearts lined up with God's heart. So we serve faithfully as we wait. We hold fast to love and to justice. And then finally, what do we do as we wait? We sing. We sing. I, um, I heard someone saying this week, they were talking about how 
the blues came about. And they said they arose out of the African-American experience of slavery uh, and Reconstruction and, and Jim Crow. And basically the blues were their way of singing their suffering. We have that in the Bible. Many of the Psalms are basically the blues of God's people. They're their ways of singing their suffering. How long, O oh God, will you forget us forever? How long will you stand afar off? And so, yeah, we're called to sing songs of praise and celebration, but this is a hard world. And so we're, we're called to sing the blues as well. And, and it's good to sing the blues, and it's okay to have the blues. A, a lot of us get that way around Christmas, and then we feel kind of guilty because we're sad and somebody was going to like try to cheer us up it's okay it's okay to be sad at christmas it's a it's a broken world and so we at times sing our sadness we sing the blues so how do we wait then if i could sum all that up i'd say we wait with a patient impatience or with an impatient patience what do i mean by that well Think back to Romans 8. Listen to some of the language from Romans 8. We, for the creation waits with eager longing. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Do you see why it's a, a patient impatience? We groan. We, we're eager. We want it to happen, but we wait for it with patience. I think it's like this. We wait with the eager anticipation of a child waiting for Christmas morning, while at the same time waiting with the seasoned patient, patience of a grandparent who's done this Christmas morning thing before. And those are combined in our waiting on Jesus to return and make all things new. What are we waiting for what are we waiting for look in verse 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 uh, 14 of chapter 13 we read here I, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol I shall redeem them from death O death where are your plagues O Sheol where is your sting compassion is hidden from my eyes. This is a, a notoriously difficult verse to translate. Um, even the ESV has like gone back and forth. Like this version of the ESV says, uh, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. The, my version in my copy of the Bible says, Will I or shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? And so translators are a little unsure. Is this kind of a continuing part of the judgment of God where he's saying, shall I ransom them? No, they're going to die. Or it may be as you get in the book of Hosea, one of these little interludes where you see a little bit of hope that this destruction is not going to have the last word. The Apostle Paul actually picks this up. Uh, If you'll turn over to the, the benediction in your bulletin, he picks this up and combines it with a passage from Isaiah in 1 Corinthians, and in verse 54, it says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
And so Paul is even, he's either taking the, the, the quote from Hosea that was a quote of judgment and saying, look, the judgment's over in the resurrection of Jesus. Or he's taking a quote from Hosea that was actually giving us a glimmer of hope and saying, that little glimmer that it was pointing to is actually here. Well, there's no more sting to death. The resurrection is, is here. It's reality. That's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to the redemption of our bodies. We're looking forward to the adoption of sons. We're looking forward to the day when we see Jesus and become like Him. We're looking forward to this. We read in the book of Revelation. This is chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy. True. Then from chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Oh, that's, that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for. Do you remember the words of Sam Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings when he finds out that Gandalf, who he thought was dead, is actually alive? This is what he says when he sees him. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf, and then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. That's what we're waiting for. Uh, Many years ago, my grandmother gave me a, a gift at Christmas, and I had gotten pretty good at guessing what I was getting, and so she tried to disguise the gift that she was giving me. There's a box about this long, about that big, and I walked up to the tree and I picked up the box and I said, that's a video game with two bricks in it. And it was. And that's that's my claim to fame to this day, why I can predict all football scores accurately. I guess that. But, but I, I, I knew what was coming, right? I was able to guess what was coming. But I still had to wait for it. I didn't get to open the gift right then. I had to wait to open this gift. We know what's coming. 
We know what's coming. Everything sad will come untrue. We still have to wait for it. So let me, let me just say two things as, as we close this. Number one, Advent is waiting practice. Okay? Advent is, is waiting practice. It, it's, it's a way for us to practice waiting. Uh, to, to, to think about the fact that Christmas, as great as it's going to be, will never satisfy our deepest desires, our deepest longings. But a day is coming that will satisfy those longings because the Savior is coming who can. So Advent is an opportunity for us to practice waiting. Secondly, Advent is an opportunity for us to practice celebrating. To practice celebrating. Your Christmas celebration ought to be a taste of the celebration that's to come. And, you know, if you read the Christmas story on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, and don't just think about Jesus in a manger, that's good. Think about Jesus coming back. Jesus is coming back to make all things new. Think about that as, as you read and as you celebrate Christmas, as you sit at the table and there are believers who are no longer there. And you're sad because of that. But there is a day coming when you get to eat with them again. Because Jesus is coming and making all things new. So celebrate. Don't just remember the first coming. Look forward to the second coming when our exile will be over. So give good gifts. And drink good beverages. And eat good meat. And go back for seconds and thirds on desserts. And sing loudly. And give to those in need. And invite somebody to celebrate with you. Use this Christmas to celebrate and anticipate the celebration that is to come. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we do uh, find ourselves in a broken world and it is hard to wait. And it is often sad as we wait. And so help us to wait properly. Help us to wait with a Godward focus. Help us not to despair, but to pray as we wait. Help us to, to, to fight for love and to fight for justice. Help us to know it's okay that this is hard. Help us to sing both our praise and our sadness. And remind us in all this, Father, what it is that we wait for. We do wait for a day when everything sad will come on tree. We wait for a day when we will see Jesus, when we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. So comfort us, encourage us, and give us joy as we think about that and as we wait. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.